0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We were hoping to get you good and ready for spring with today's show and then Mother Nature decided to remind us it's still winter. So ignore the rain and the slush and think of the warmer days ahead because it's not too early to plan your spring garden. Today we're focusing on native plants. What are they? And how are they important to, why are they important rather, to include in your landscaping? It's easy to be attracted to the colorful, traditional plants found in the garden departments of big box stores. which native plants could complement the garden you've already started. Globe Pequot Press in Guilford, Connecticut has published a new book that can help you figure out what native plants will work where you live. Co authors Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe are with us this hour to talk about their book, Native Plants for New England Gardens, and answer your questions. Here's the phone number, 860 275 7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, joining us from the studios of WGBH in Boston, Mark Richardson is director of the Botanic Garden at the New England Wildflower Society. Dan Jaffe, propagator and stockbed grower for the New England Wildflower Society, also photographer for this book that they co-authored. Mark and Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: I'll start with you, Mark. Tell us about New England Wildflower Society and how both of you decided to work on this book.
3: Sure, yeah. um, Really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. New England Wildflower Society is uh, really the nation's oldest plant conservation organization. We've been around for about 118 years altogether. We're, uh, We're really focused on conserving and promoting native plants in a lot of different ways. We work with um, state agencies all throughout New England um, to preserve and protect uh, rare and endangered species. And we also try to inspire people to use more native plants in their own gardens at home. Uh, We have a botanic garden called Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts. It's about um, 45 acres altogether, and a series of really beautiful naturalistic landscape display gardens, uh, primarily focused on on native plants in the landscape. Uh, we also grow a lot of plants um, from wild-collected seed uh, at our nursery called Nasami Farm out in western Massachusetts. Um, and I, I think the book is really an extension of the work that we do at the Botanic Garden um, and also through the nursery. We're you know really trying to get people excited about using native plants in their own. Um, home gardens. Natives are, you know, really beautiful. Uh, I think that's the first thing that we really try to remind people or, or try to emphasize with people. Um, and they're also very supportive of local ecosystems.
0: We've done a, a past show on seed banks. I understand New England Wildflower uh, Society is working on a, a program to help bank the seeds of endangered plants.
3: Yeah, that's right. We are the region's seed bank, so we work with um, a team of hundreds of volunteers um, and all the state agencies, the natural heritage programs in each each um, state, to set priorities for monitoring rare populations um, and really trying to figure out which ones need to be preserved in in uh, long-term cold storage in our seed bank. So we have, you know, hundreds of collections of uh, of seed that we make each year um, and bring that germplasm, that material back, so that it if, uh, you know, it's really an insurance policy against um, the decline or the disappearance of, of rare species in our region.
0: Uh, Dan, when we talk about native plants, uh, tell us more about what we mean when we say that and some and how you got started at, at uh, the, the uh, Wildflower Society.
2: Sure. Um, well, I'll start with the easy one, uh, kind of how I got started. The, the how to define native, we could have written in a whole book <laughs> just on that. Um, I, I've I came down from Maine, um, having actually originally grew up in Connecticut. Um, I was working up in Maine at a local nursery and I was uh, you know, pretty much kind of in, in the world of standard horticulture. Um, I was looking to kind of expand a little bit, I had just started getting into native plants and I heard about this cool place called Garden in the Woods and how they had internships and I headed down there for what was supposed to be a six month internship and eight years later I'm still there and I've gone from kind of intern to job and job to career and just kind of haven't left um every time i even think about going somewhere some cool new project comes up like writing a book or you know other similar sort of things um so there's the easy question the, the tough one is how we kind of define a native um this I've, I've got literally an entire lecture on defining native and at the end i don't know if we're any closer to coming up with a good solid definition there's there's a lot of kind of nuances involved but the, the basic idea is that these are plants that are indigenous to the area that we're talking about um, and you need to define that area. Um, just to say a plant is native doesn't really mean anything unless, um, in our case, we're talking about native plants of New England, um, and even that is kind of a little tricky because New England is a is a political line. You know, we're, we're, our states don't really matter to plants much. It's it's not like you've got you know the Republican plants up in Maine and the Democratic ones down in Connecticut. You know, it's it. So plants are much more interested in in rainfall patterns and hardiness zones and you know kind of soil geology. And all of those characteristics go into creating something we call the ecoregions. The ecoregions are based on all these kind of natural factors and that's how we define native, at least from a geographic scale. Um, It makes a lot more sense and it actually takes a lot of guesswork out of kind of picking plants and and gardening. Um, We were just talking the other day about how we haven't actually checked hardiness zone on any of the plants we worked with in a long, long time because when you work with native plants, you automatically know that they're hardy. It just kind of simplifies things. Um, The next piece of it is defining time, um, which is always tougher. The the simple answer is we say native plants are are plants that are naturally occurring pre-European settlement. Um, it's kind of a, a line in the sand, and it's its comes with some you know benefits and some troubles. Um, but the basic idea is that if you're talking about pre-European settlement, you're talking about plants that that didn't come across an ocean on you know a ship. they're They're plants that that were moved around on much more kind of uh, natural local levels. And so that kind of native value that is inquisitive in these plants really holds true. Um, a plant coming from Europe doesn't have nearly the same value as a plant coming, say, from Connecticut up into Maine, um, and that's where kind of, that's how we've simplified native, at least to a working level.
0: Now, Dan, you mentioned ecoregions. Uh, you have a map in your book. Again, we're talking about uh, Native Plants for New England Gardens. This is a new book by co-authors Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe, who join us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Uh, what ecoregions are in Connecticut?
2: So Connecticut is is well. There's I guess you'd say there's two ecoregions in Connecticut. Um, it's mostly dominated by the northeastern coastal zone, which is probably about three quarters of the state. Um, but you also um, in the north kind of western part of Connecticut, you get a kick of the the northeastern highlands, which runs kind of um, north throughout New England into Canada even. Um, and so when we're um, when we're kind of talking about native plants, we, we found that. The best thing to do isn't to tell people what to plant, but better to kind of give them all the information that they could use themselves. Um, So at Garden in the Woods, for example, we're a regional organization, and we define native based on all five ecoregions of New England because we're a New England organization. Um, My garden, you know, in in a western kind of central Massachusetts, if I want to really define native, I'm probably just working out of just the northeastern coastal zone, which is, you know, my my local ecoregion. Um, that being said, we also try and kind of keep things much more practical for people. Um, the idea that you're somehow doing bad by planting a, you know, a tomato or a rosemary in your garden is, is not at all necessary. Um, what we kind of go with isn't necessarily just plant natives, but plant more natives. Um, the only plants we're going to tell you not to plant are the invasive species. Other than that, we just want to see people working with these plants more often, but it doesn't mean you have to uh, go excluding all the others either.
0: Let's talk about some specifics. Uh, when I think of native plants, sometimes when I'm hiking, you may, you may notice a, a plant that you don't have in your backyard, but it's growing naturally in the woods. Uh, uh, one of the first times I saw the cardinal flower was along the Connecticut River, and it's just a beautiful uh, flower. Uh, Mark Richardson, explain to us what the cardinal flower is and, and what areas are best suited for that particular plant.
3: Yeah. So we, we have uh, a couple different species of cardinal flower, really. Um, one is Lobelia cardinalis, which is our red cardinal flower. That's uh, a beautiful native plant. It's got bright red flowers, which is kind of a rarity, uh, in in at least in our native flora. Um, it's really supportive of hummingbirds. Uh, so hummingbirds are the primary pollinators. Uh, hummingbirds and, and moths and butterf- or butterflies, really, that have really long tongues that can get down to that nectar reward that's at the base of uh, a really long tubular flower. Uh, we also have another related species called uh, Lobelia syphilitica, which is uh, great blue Lobelia. Um, that's a fairly rare species. It's actually the, the one that's on the cover of the book. Uh, it's, it's rare in the wild in New England, but it's a great garden plant, um, and it's a, a really beautiful one. Both of them prefer wet soils, um, more so Lobelia cardinalis than syphilitica, um, but they also will you know tolerate your standard sort of average garden soil. Um, definitely want full sun, and one thing that's unique about about, uh, the red cardinal flower in particular um, is that it's a pretty short-lived plant. Uh, it's, it's essentially a biennial. Um, so it's really one that needs to seed itself around in your garden. So it's important to let it uh, complete its life cycle, meaning allow it to flower, allow it to set seed, allow that seed to spread around. Uh, otherwise, you won't really have any more cardinal flower in your garden the following year. Uh, it's one that really needs to seed around quite a bit. But it's a uh, they're both great plants. We love to feature them at Garden and the woods we have a, a great display at, at the garden called our old meadow garden um, and last year just had hundreds and hundreds of lobelia syphilitica uh, blooming in concert with some goldenrods and and uh, and some nice contrasting um, uh, other colors that were just brilliant just a really really outstanding uh, display <laughs>
0: Uh, if you want to join the conversation and ask a question of our guest today, the number 860 275 as we explore uh, the importance of uh, native plants uh, in your uh, landscape, um, I wanted to go back to to, Jan, uh, to Dan Jaffe. Uh, we were hearing Mark talk about the cardinal flower. This is a, a plant that does well in moist areas, and that hits on my next question of um, people who want to work on their gardens, they need to know about um, the type of soil they have, the, how much sunlight they get. And what are the best ways for them to, to learn about um, the area where they live and then figure out what plants work for that particular spot, Dan?
2: Yeah, um, I'd say, you know, the the first step is to kind of just get outside and start really paying attention to your landscape. Um, Try and make a note of when the sun actually hits the site that that you're thinking about planting. And then try and also make notes throughout the day as to when that sun actually disappears and get a general sense of of actually how many hours of direct sun you've got um, on your spot. Um, the other thing that can work really wonderfully, I, I can't recommend enough um, good soil testing. It, it doesn't need to be fancy and it's not very expensive. Um, most cooperative extensions offer soil testing and it's literally a matter of digging up a couple you know, things of soil, drying them out and sending them off and they'll tell you what is in your soil and kind of give you recommendations as to what you might want to do with your soil. Um, but the other thing that we really kind of jump on at, at, um, at New England Wildflower Society is is not to fight nature. Um, the, the kind of cool thing about native plants is we've got a plant that will grow in absolutely any conditions you can think of. So a, a lot of times when I'm talking to people who say they've got very sunny, very dry, very well-drained sites, they'll immediately start thinking about, you know, how much compost do I need to bring in? Um, you know What sort of irrigation system should I install? How do I improve the soils? Um, and I'll immediately jump towards a, a large range of plants that will thrive in the conditions they've got present without any need for additional inputs. Um, it's kind of the nice thing about the, the native flora. There's, there's such a wide range of things that there are plants that will grow in those really sunny, dry spots the same way there are plants that will grow in very, you know, dark, acidic, shady spots. And some of them happen to be really, really cool species that don't do well in kind of what we normally think of as the good garden soils. Um, you know, one of the ones that comes up to mind for me is that there's a, an aster called stiff aster. It's um linera Um, It's a plant that thrives in sunny, sandy sites, you see it in coastal regions, Um, I've actually got some in a meadow up the road for me that's just very, very sandy. Um, I've tried planting it in good garden soils and it just doesn't really do all that well. Um, That being said, in the sunny, sandy sites you've got a fabulous flower that shows up in kind of late summer, early fall and blooms pretty much until the, the cold season really kicks in. And it's one of those few perennials that has some really nice fall color. Um, something we normally think is kind of restricted to the woody plants, but there's a couple perennial standouts for that, and this is definitely one of them.
0: So It sounds like when you know again the area that you have in your backyard, what works best for it, and you can uh, pick and choose the plants uh, that don't require a lot of maintenance, it, it actually saves you on time, but also better for the environment, Mark.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it's always important to choose plants for the site. Um, you know, we, we like to say that native plants are adapted to our region, and so uh, they really require fewer inputs. So, less water, less fertilizer, um, you know, less of your time, less of your money, really. Uh, but it, it's still important to choose plants that are adapted to the particular site conditions that your garden has. So, I think Dan gave some good recommendations about how to determine your site conditions. One of the things I would like to point out is in the back of the book, we have an appendix that has sort of our top 10 plants for uh, specific sites. So we've got a list of plants for dry sites, a list of plants for shady sites, a list of plants for moist to wet sites, and this is really meant to be a list that you can bring to the garden center with you and say, listen I've got a wet site, I'm really interested in these 10 plants. Uh, Show me what they look like, I'd I'd, I'd like to include them in my garden. And I think it's always important that we're choosing plants for the site rather than choosing you know that pretty pink flower or that that pretty purple flower and then figuring out if it's going to work in our garden. That's that's sort of a recipe for failure. Um, so we always try to make sure that people understand what their site conditions are before they choose plants.
0: Oh, now, before we take a call, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about where is the best place for Connecticut residents to buy native plants, because it's so easy again. Uh, you'll see those uh, the, the colorful plants in the bigger box stores, uh, and they may not have a lot of these native species that are included in your book, Mark.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. A, a lot of nurseries and garden centers sell native plants without necessarily marketing them as native. Mm. Uh, I think the, the prime example of this is the highbush blueberry, which you know is a really common garden plant. When people start getting into edibles, it's one of the first plants they gravitate toward. Um, and it's, it's a great native species, and it's, it's not always marketed as such. And so a lot of the big box stores and a lot of nurseries that don't necessarily market native plants still have a wide array of them available. Um, but in in Instead of making a, you know, a specific recommendation for a nursery or a garden center, I think what I will do is, is um, you know, encourage people to ask a, a, simple, a, or a simple question when they visit a garden center, uh, and that's whether their plants have been treated with systemic insecticides. Um, systemic insecticides have gotten a lot of attention uh, recently. People are familiar with the term neonic. Um, these are uh, compounds that are long-lived in, in plants. They're applied. Uh, they're absorbed by a plant's vascular system, and then they become toxic to really anything that feeds on them. Um, one of the things that we're really trying to do with natives is is encourage wildlife and encourage beneficial insects, uh, especially things like pollinators. Um, and by using plants that have been treated with systemic insects, insecticides, we're essentially making them toxic to that wildlife that we're trying to support. Um, so I, I think the recommendation that I would have for people is, you know, look for garden centers that, uh, that say that they don't treat their plants with systemic insecticides, and they're likely to have native plants um, available.
0: You can join our conversation as we learn more about native plants, the number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 7266 calling from Bristol. Deborah, go ahead. Oh, it doesn't look like Deborah's there. Uh, well, I guess we'll try to get her um, after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today we're talking with Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe, who both work at New England Wildflower Society in Framingham, Mass. They're co-authors of this new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. After the break, we're going to hear more recommendations from them. Also learn more about yard and garden maintenance that doesn't require lots of mulch and expensive fertilizers. And we'll take your questions, too, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you started planning your garden? Spring is just a few short weeks away, and today we're learning about the importance of choosing native plants for your yard. A new book out this week will help you plan. It's called Native Plants for New England Gardens, published by Globe Pequot Press in Guilford, Connecticut. Co-authors Kim Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe are with us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Have a question for them? 860 275 7266 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we think about uh, our gardens uh, each spring, people flock to perennials. What are some perennials that people may not be seeing uh, at the stores, but would be good to incorporate uh, in their yard?
3: Oh boy, uh, where to begin? Uh, we have, you know, we, we really struggled to narrow down the list of plants for the book because, you know, Dan and I are both uh, both plant nuts, obviously. Uh, it was really hard to, to kind of narrow down the list and, and choose our favorites. I think one of the ones that I always like to point out are the are the milkweeds. Um, you know, these are uh, plants that are often um, sort of maybe less than favored by gardeners. Um, I think people are, are pretty familiar with the common milkweed, which is a, a pretty weedy plant, but a great name. Native species, um, But there's a couple of other milkweeds that I'd, I'd point out. One is butterfly milkweed, which is Asclepius tuberosa. Um, another is rose milkweed or swamp milkweed. It's Asclepius incarnata. They're both very attractive, um, beautiful plants uh, that, you know, work well in uh, different site conditions. So uh, butterfly milkweed prefers dry, sandy sites, uh, whereas rose milkweed uh, really prefers moister soils. Um, butterfly milkweed's bright orange, really vibrant color, um, dark green foliage, and uh, rose milkweed is more on the kind of pinkish side uh, and slightly fragrant as well. The great thing about milkweeds is they're the the only, the single host plant for uh, monarch Butterfly caterpillars, um, and people are always interested in supporting monarchs, and and really the best way to do that is make sure that you've got at least one milkweed in your garden. Uh, last summer, uh, we I actually watched uh, with my kids in the backyard, uh, monarch butterfly fly around and lay eggs on on the monarch on the milkweeds growing in my backyard, and we were able to harvest. You know, kind of grab some of the eggs, put them in a in an aquarium tank, and and watch those caterpillars uh, grow and develop and into ultimately butterflies. It was a great experience, and the only way to get that is to have a, have a milkweed in your garden. Um, so I think that's a you know that's a genus that I would. Um, uh, tend to gravitate toward, uh, especially for people that are interested in working with native plants to support local pollinators.
0: In your book, uh, you list goldenrod, which oftentimes gets a bad reputation, uh, Dan. Uh, tell us why and uh, what they, people may be confusing it with in terms of, of some of the sneezing that happens in later in the spring.
2: Yeah, um, goldenrod is one of my favorite examples because it, you know, gets such a bad reputation and I've always had a thing for the underdog. <laughs> um, I think there's something like 56 different native goldenrod species in New England. Um, so to try and make any statement to cover the entire genus, is just, it's it's setting yourself up for, for failure. Um There are most certainly some very, you know, vigorous, weedy goldenrods. Saladago canadensis, for example, is is a very vigorous goldenrod. I would not recommend it for small garden spaces. Um, Highway medians, roadsides, that might make a lot of sense. You know, I'll take that over Kentucky bluegrass any day, but definitely not a garden plant. Um, that being said, there are also other species like Solidago puberella, the downy goldenrod, or Solidago casea, the wreath goldenrod, that make fabulous garden plants. Um, these are clumping species, they do not seed around, they don't spread very strongly, some of them I wish would spread a little more strongly, they're, they're kind of you know, diminutive at times. Um, but the thing about the goldenrods is there's not a single herbaceous plant in New England that supports more life than a goldenrod. Um, I always get a kick, I, you know, I hop online and I see these, you know, lists of plant all these plants for pollinators, you never see goldenrod on those lists. And yet, in many cases, you take every single plant on that list and combine their value and they're not as valuable as a single goldenrod. They just support a ton of life, um, not just in their flower form, but also as the leaves do, um, as, as food for caterpillars. Um so in addition to the kind of the the weedy bad rap they get a bad rap for um hay fever. Mm-hmm. Um oftentimes we you know we we see goldenrods blooming at a time of year where we're getting all sniffly, we've got hay fever and you know you just put two and two together. You're you're sneezing, you look around, you see all these bright yellow flowers, you just assume, you know, goldenrod is the culprit. Um but there's the way you know that goldenrod can't have anything to do hay fever is it's got a pretty flower. Um, And Pretty flowers are made to attract pollinators. Um, The plant needs a pollinator to come along, collect the pollen, move it from one plant to the next. Um, It can't do this uh, without the pollinator because it's got this heavy sticky pollen that just can't float around on the wind. Um, whereas hay fever is caused when we're breathing in windborne pollen, um, which means it's coming from something else, and you don't, you know, when you're, when you've got windborne pollen, you don't actually have to attract anything, you know, there's no attracting the wind, it's just kind of there. So the flowers of these windborne species are usually very small, um, often green or creamy, you know, not very noticeable. So there's a, another plant, um, ragweed, um, there's others, but ragweed is probably the major culprit that blooms at the exact same time as goldenrods and is the major culprit of hay fever. Um, the only way to get hay fever from goldenrod is to take the flowers, shove it up your nose, and inhale deeply. Um, it's just not something that's really going to happen. But they tend to kind of get that uh, the bad rap just because of a uh, unlucky timing on their part.
0: You can join the conversation if you have a question about native plants. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Kim's calling from New Haven. Kim, go ahead. Hi, um, this is Kim Stoner from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and uh, a friend of mine. Let me know that this was going on, and uh, I have a lot of information about planting for pollinators on the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station website. We have a prominent picture of goldenrod with lots of
1: uh, bumblebees all over it, Um, so I would recommend that as a place
0: to look at um, information about native plants for goldenrod and how to establish native plant meadows. We have a lot of information about that. And we have lists from the Xerxes Society uh, uh, for uh, invertebrate conservation of good native plants for pollinators
3: in the Northeast.
0: Thank you, Kim, uh, for your call. Uh, Jim's calling from Windsor Locks. Jim, go ahead.
3: Yes, I'm, I'm calling about Japanese knotweed. I've been fighting this stuff for ages. I mow it every year, uh, every month, uh, and I just can't seem to get rid of it. And I've tried just about everything, and I don't really want to spray with uh, Roundup or anything like that. Do you have a uh, recommendation for some sort of a grass or some sort of a wild plant that I can seed like late um, August, uh, uh, September-ish, that will pop up before the knotweed comes out and chokes it out?
0: Uh, Good questions. Uh, Mark, do you want to take that one?
3: Actually, Dan was chomping at the bit to answer that one, so I think I'll (laughs) let him take it.
2: All right. um, Yeah, well, so the the problem with knotweed, um, being an invasive species, it's kind of got the upper hand. Um, So uh, we don't really have any native plants that could just out-compete the invasives without some extra help on our part. Um, If we did, they'd, well, I don't know if they'd be invasive, but they'd be much weedier than they normally are. Um, Knotweed is is a real pain in the butt, though. It has a way of kind of constantly coming back over and over again. Um, Am I correct in assuming this is growing in a sunny site?
0: Oh let me let me get Jim back on the line. Jim he was asking if it was growing in a sunny location.
2: Oh
3: yes and and it's right near a, a water source and it's it's sandy dry soil. It's not really wet soil. Uh it, it, that stuff likes to dry uh, grow in that stuff. You know that kind of a soil.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I've I actually had a patch of this stuff up in Maine at an apartment I was living at. It took me about four years to finally get on top of it and, and kill it off. And I did the same thing as you. I was I was mowing it back regularly, and it kind of kept coming back for more. I was eating as much of it as I possibly could, and it was coming back for more. I I kept you know I tried everything, and nothing really worked until I eventually um, stumbled across this idea of solarizing, um, which I wouldn't say was a one-time job, um, but with a couple of seasons of work, I got it out, and it got it out fully. Um, and it doesn't require the use of any you know kind of um, chemical applications. Um, solarizing is pretty much going to be using the, the power of the sun to pretty much just bake the area. And what you're looking to do is is kind of lay down some plastic sheeting on top of this stuff. Um, you're going to want to kind of do what you've been doing, um, cut it down in the, the early season, and then go in there and lay some nice clear, um, as thick as you can, plastic on top of it. Um, you want to leave all the kind of stuff that you cut down right in there. And it's not a bad idea to water the site right after, you know, right before you lay it down, because you're going to want to build up a little bit of steam pressure in there. Pin down the sides and let the sun just do its work and roast away at the thing. Um, Especially with Japanese knotweed, you're going to want to be vigilant because it's going to start by trying to push through that plastic. And it's it's almost definitely going to, you know, in some areas push through the plastic. And you're going to want to kind of get in there and and clip back whatever's pushing through, knock it back down, give a patch of new plastic over it, kind of keep at it. Once you get on top of it, though, with some kind of vigilance in that first season, it, it should start to just kind of bake away. And the nice thing about um, solarizing is it does not more than just kills the, the upper section. It's going to get into the roots as well. Um, different, you know, organizations have done different tests, but you found that in, in the right conditions, you can get, you know, temperatures raising up into the 120, 130 degrees, um, you know, within the top couple inches of soil. And that can really do the trick. Um, The other thing I'd say is with any invasive removal that you ever do, um, you know, I I hear a lot about people removing invasives and and rarely do I hear about the second part of the equation, which is once the invasives out there, you've got to put something else in its place, preferably something strong and and vigorous that can really act as competitive pressure to, you know, that that one or two seeds that might have survived or the little bit of root or whatever might still be there. so, you know, up in Maine, when I was working in, in a similar site, it was also dry. We, we got rid of the Japanese knotweed, and then we went and planted staghorn sumac in there and actually undersowed it with some, uh, some goldenrods. Um, staghorn sumac is a, is a beautiful species. It's absolutely fabulous. I, I would love this plant so much more if I could use it more regularly. Um, but it is a vigorous spreader. It really does want to take some space. It's probably not a great choice for, you know, a small garden setting. But to push back against an invasive or maybe fill up a parking lot island, it's a, it's a really great choice.
0: This is where we live. You're hearing Dan Jaffe, also Mark Richardson, both co-authors of a new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Mark, oftentimes people are thinking about having to buy all the mulch uh, once uh, the weather gets warmer. What are some good ground covers uh, that they could be using instead? I I thought it was interesting in your book, you mentioned uh, wild strawberry.
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Lucy. Thanks for bringing that one up. Um, I'm I'm the world's cheapest gardener. I really try to, uh, you know, do as much as I can with as little uh, a little expenditure as possible. And so the idea of buying new mulch every single season uh, just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And it's also not the smart uh, choice for the gardener. So we always try to encourage people to find local sources of you know recycled or repurposed materials for mulch. Uh, the best mulch source to use is really shredded leaves uh, or wood chips. A lot of times uh, arborists, uh, tree crews, are looking to get rid of uh, wood chips, uh, and they're more than happy to dump wood chips in your driveway and not charge you anything for it. So let those age a little while before using them, um, and it's a great source of mulch. But really what people ought to be doing in their gardens is not thinking about mulch as a you know sort of aesthetic piece of the garden, um, but really thinking of it as a functional piece. You know, It's there to, to uh, keep weed seeds down, retain a little bit of moisture, um, but really kind of Hold the ground until uh, the, the the plants in your garden actually have a chance to kind of rise up through the soil and then cover the ground uh, themselves. And so, you know, one thing to really think about is using ground covers, uh, as you mentioned, as a as a mulch alternative. Um, things like in a woodland garden, um, running foam flower, which is Tiarella cordifolia, uh, is a fantastic uh, ground cover that works well as mulch. We planted thousands of them at Garden in the Woods a, a couple of years back uh, in our Curtis Woodland Garden, and really we. We don't necessarily need to mulch uh, in that part of the garden any longer because um, because the tiarella just does such a great job of holding the holding the soil and, and preventing us from having to apply mulch. Uh, wild strawberry that you mentioned is a really fantastic ground cover. Uh, it's a pretty vigorous um, plant. It spreads pretty you know pretty wildly, um, but it's a, a really good alternative to sort of the traditional American lawn. Um, gives you you know great uh, great tasting fruit in mid June uh, and really works well as a nice kind of green uh, understory, uh, not, not so much understory, but ground cover plant that works well in sunny and pretty dry locations. Um, so there's a couple I, a couple more that I really like. One is uh, a small shrub. Actually, uh, it doesn't really look like much of a shrub because it's so small, but it's called 3 tooth syncofoil or Cebaldiopsis tridentata. Uh, it's a plant in the rose family and um, has evergreen foliage, turns a nice kind of maroon for the for the winter, um, but it's a nice green, glossy foliage. Foliage uh, during the you know during the warmer months and a, and a small white flower that looks like a small rose flower. Um, that plant's great for sunny, dry locations, especially along the edges of driveways where it can get you know pummeled with a, a little bit of salt spray um, from the plow over the winter, and it doesn't really mind uh, the salt spray at all. So that's that's another one that I really like. Uh, so wild strawberry, you know, Cibadopsis, the three-tooth Cincafoil, um, and Tiarella cordifolia. Just a short list, um, but there's you know dozens more that I could, I could mention.
0: Uh, Rick's calling from South Windsor. Rick, go ahead.
2: Hi. Um, yeah, I was uh, really intrigued by your uh, talking about milkweed. Um, and I'm wondering, I was always taught that milkweed is the devil, so you, you don't want to ever <laughs> have that. But my question is, uh, I've never seen that in a garden center, and I'm wondering if I couldn't find it there, could I get, uh, could I grow it from seed? and where to get the seeds. Then my other quick question is, I've seen uh, termites, um, and I use black mulch, uh,
0: unfortunately, but I've seen termites, and I'm wondering if there's any mulch that's more or less susceptible to that. Thank you for your question. Dan, do you want to take that one?
2: Yeah, um, so milkweed is one that, um, so the the kind of idea that milkweed is the devil probably comes back from a specific species, Asclepius syriaca, um, which is the common milkweed. I'd, I'd hardly call it the devil, but it is most certainly the, the kind of the bad boy of the group. It's It's a vigorous spreader, it's a strong spreader. When you walk into a field and see 30,000 milkweed, you're almost definitely looking at Asclepius syriaca. Um, I've always thought of it as a good plant for those roadside conditions or abandoned lots or, or areas where you're just having trouble growing other things, but as far as a, a a delicate garden plant, there's other species I would jump at first. And those other species are starting to show up at nurseries. Um, there are two that Mark already mentioned, Asclepius tuberosa, the butterfly milkweed, and Asclepius incarnata, the rose milkweed. We've got about five more species that are native in New England, but none of them are common. Most of them are actually quite rare. Um, but those two species are starting to show up in nurseries, and they're well worth searching out for. Um, the other thing I'll talk about kind of on the nursery side of things is nurseries are businesses. Um, they'll respond to the questions of their, their clientele. So, So if you're looking for things like milkweed and having trouble finding them, you know, let them know you're looking for them. Because if they don't have them, there's a decent chance they can get them. And if four or five people start asking for them, they're going to get them in because it's a good business move. Um, as, as far as growing them is concerned, um, so the, the, the good side and the bad side is there's, you know, the good side is there is one species that's quite easy to grow from seed. The bad side is it's the one that you might think of as the devil. It's the one that spreads very vigorously. So if you've got a spot for a strong spreading plant, you can just order a Sclepia seed, just throw it down on the landscape and it's going to germinate and grow. And you're going to have a nice patch of the stuff. Um, if you want to grow the other ones from seed, they are ones that require a little more skill and definitely a lot more patience. Um, they can be difficult to grow and they're definitely difficult to transplant. They're ones that are best grown, um, best purchased as an established pot and then planted in the garden versus trying to grow yourself. Um, there's a lot of native plants that I recommend people grow themselves as a variety that are very easy to grow from seed. Um, unfortunately, those two milkweeds are, are not one of them. They're, they're a little bit tougher as far as uh, initial growth is concerned. Um, and what you mentioned about mulch... Um, I think kind of getting back to what Mark already mentioned, if if you want to really try and avoid, uh, you know, termites are attracted to wood, um, and we think of, I've got a rule I tend to tell in my classes, if you've got a garden that's more than five years old and you're still adding mulch to it, you need more plants. Um, We we think of mulch as a good temporary solution to the problem that occurs in early gardens. But as your garden is maturing, I mean, who ever got into gardening for love of mulch? Um, We we use plants pretty much as living mulch all the time. And and living plants are not going to be nearly as attractive to termites as, you know, a whole bunch of wood chips on the ground.
0: Well, we're getting a tweet from a listener uh, who wanted us to highlight that the value of natives to increase biodiversity in city parks. Residents can ask municipalities to add wildflower meadows and native shrubs can reduce mowing costs. Uh, that sounds like a good idea, Mark Richardson.
3: Yeah, it's always a good idea. I mean, what you know, one of the things that you, you really learn pretty quickly when you start working with natives is that, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, it, you're really supporting wildlife, all sorts of wildlife. And, um, you know, w- when you think about birds, I mean, everyone loves birds. I think people oftentimes are a little bit hesitant to embrace insects at first. But when you think about birds and supporting birds, the best way to do that is to plant native plants that, uh, that actually support insects, uh, which birds feed upon. So I, I think something like 90 or 95 percent of our native birds um, feed insects to their young Uh, without plants to support those insects uh, we wouldn't have birds and so you know one of the best ways to support local bird populations is to is to plant natives in your garden Um, so biodiversity is definitely a a great uh, sort of uh, uh, i guess side effect of using natives in your garden is supporting all that great wildlife that we love
0: We've been talking a lot about perennials. Uh, You mentioned um, some shrubs. Uh, Kat's calling from Durham. She has a question about um, replacing trees. Kat, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Go ahead. I have a question about we've lost a lot of trees around our area in the last few years with storms, and we're looking to grow faster growing trees to replace all of those trees. Do you have any suggestions? Thank you, Kat, for your question. And you do uh, tackle this in the book as well. Again, we're talking about native plants for New England gardens with co-authors Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe. Uh, Dan, do you want to take this one?
2: Sure. Um, You know, fast growing trees are something that we tend to kind of get a lot of because, you know, oftentimes when people are asking us about it, they're just starting to plant. And the idea of a six inch tree is not nearly as appealing as a 60 foot tree. Um, a couple I'll quickly mention that I'd say just kind of look up on your own because I got more interesting ones to, to really talk about is um, red maple, Acer rubrum, our native red maple. It's not that red leaf thing that you see around, but one that turns vibrant red in the fall. Definitely a faster growing tree. Um, one that's really not common on the landscape, but I think should be, um, is our native black willow. Um, again, it, not to be confused with the weeping willows that you see around that are kind of a, a naturalized non-native, but the black willow, which is, is um, a nice kind of loose, soft texture. One that I'll kind of go into on a bit though that I really like is our, our native tulip tree. Um, this is a really fun species. It's one that actually grows so darn quickly down south that it's it, it it almost you know becomes a problem that it grows so quickly that it can kind of get in the way of things. But the nice thing about working with it in New England is it's slowed down pretty much to the perfect level. Um, you know we're cool enough and the conditions are just right up here where it, it grows quickly but not too quickly. Um, it'll eventually get very, very large, but it, you know, it kind of grows up to a nice mid-sized tree pretty quickly and then starts slowing down after that. It's got a flower that's got, um, the flower is similar in color to the tulip, but I think the real, the idea of tulip tree in a name comes from the shape of the leaves. Um, if you were to take a typical tulip flower and, and put it onto kind of a 2D drawing, you've got the shape of the tulip tree, um, leaves. Which, as far as I'm concerned, means you've got a tree that's interesting texturally before the flowers even are produced, and in this case, after that. Um, but then you get the added bonus of, of these really kind of nice yellow to orange flowers that come later in the season. Um, it's a host plant for a couple different caterpillars. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's definitely one of the faster-growing trees in our, in our flora.
0: That's Dan Jaffe, also with Mark Richardson from the studios of WGBH in Boston, co-authors of the new book Native Plants for New England Gardens. We're going to continue to talk with them after the break, and we're going to speak with a master gardener from the Yukon Extension program who's going to talk about even if you don't have a big yard or a lot of space, you can still think about incorporating native plants uh, where you live. Uh, more after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we've been talking with co-authors Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe about their new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. Uh, they both work at New England Wildflower Society in Massachusetts. And we've been hearing uh, from our listeners who have questions about native plants. Now, what if you don't have much room where you live and you want to actually do some gardening on in your yard or porch or balcony? Joining the conversation now is Sarah Bailey, State Coordinator for the UConn Extension Master Gardener Program. She's based at the Hartford County Extension Center. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about the Master Gardener Program. Master Gardener Program is a program that trains
1: essentially citizen scientists, if you will. Uh, It was developed in the early 70s when there was a real boom in interest in gardening amongst consumers at a time when extension centers didn't have that expertise. They were more geared towards the the agricultural world. So we train volunteers every year. They take a 16-week academic program and then do uh, internships and outreach during the summer. And we train them in basic horticulture so that they can then go out and volunteer in the community and pass on that information to interested homeowners and the public.
0: Now, for our listeners who live in urban areas who may not have a large space uh, to plant a big garden, uh, what if they want to just plant on their back porch or even in a community garden? Where do they begin?
1: They begin at the beginning. There's no such thing as a garden that's too small. Matter of fact, we often, often recommend doing smaller gardens when you're starting because you don't get overwhelmed. But never feel that just because you can't do that big wildlife garden, you shouldn't do something. So you can start with containers. You can start with window boxes. You can incorporate in some of the natives into your vegetable gardens. There's no reason they have to be separate.
0: Mark and Dan, what are some uh, examples of some plants that would work in a container garden? Uh, Mark, how about you take that one?
3: Yeah, actually, there's. I mean, most of our native plants, uh, especially perennials, work really well in a in a container garden. We have a number of perennial um, container displays at Garden in the Woods that we use during the season great thing about using perennials in a in a container is that they live for more than one season so you know you buy them once you put them in a container and then you get to use them again uh, there's a an image in the book of a plant called Thelictrum phylectroides in a container it's not one that's typically found in containers but it works really well uh, it's a nice display has a great little uh, pink flower and uh, works very well so I, I think a lot of the herbaceous you know perennials um, in the book and a lot of the ferns as well uh, would work really well in in containers there's really no reason um, not to use any of the uh, species that are, that are in the book in a, in a container garden. Most of them would work great.
0: I'm glad you brought up ferns. Uh, Sarah, what are some of your favorites? There's so many varieties.
1: Oh, there's just so many out there. Hay-scented fern is certainly one of the ones that I love. Uh, autumn fern is another one. What I love are the plants, whether they're ferns or otherwise, that have great foliage texture. We sometimes get really hung up on color, whereas it's the foliage, the shapes, and the, and the formations and the textures that really can make an interesting container.
0: Like, um, give us an example.
1: Uh, well, I think Dan already mentioned uh, tiarella foam flower, which has just a wonderful little leaf to it. Uh, that's probably one of my favorites, along with
0: some of the ferns. Michael's calling from Avon. Michael, go ahead with your question.
1: Um, yeah, I plant a vegetable garden every year, and I was wondering if there's any uh, vegetables that are native to this area. Sarah, go ahead. Good question. Um Besides blueberries? besides Well, blueberries <laughs> are fruits, so let's let's get technical here. Um, certainly probably there are some native versions of some of the root crops, but, you know, on the top of my head, I can't come to that one.
2: Um, I've got a couple I could throw in if you'd like. Okay, go, go ahead, Dan. Um, I, I actually teach a lot of urban um, edible gardening classes, and we tend to focus on – I, I I'm, honestly, I'm not a very good vegetable gardener, so I focus on things that people aren't already growing – um, one of the ones that's kind of starting to reach people more regularly are uh, ramps, Allium trichocum. It's a, a kind of specialty crop. It's not an easy one to grow, but it is one of the tastiest plants in, I would argue, one of the tastiest plants in the world. It's a native onion species that is, is really absolutely wonderful in flavor. Um, Fiddlehead ferns are ones that are are becoming more and more popular. Um, The Matusia struthiopteris, um, actually good for stream bank stabilization. Great texture. We were talking earlier about texture. Uh, This one produces a uh, a fertile frond in the later season that dries up and holds on right through the winter and just looks beautiful popping through the snow. Um, But also, obviously, a very tasty, uh, you know, fiddlehead in the early season. and then we've got, you know, there's there's also a variety of kind of various different fruits and nuts and such, um, but some good root crops. Um, I, I Actually, there's a, a plant, a container plant I recommend to urban gardeners all the time. I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the Three Sisters. Um, there's a bit of a play on it. I call it the Two Brothers. Um, it's the um, American groundnut and the Jerusalem artichoke. I grow the two of them together in a nice large kind of whiskey barrel-sized pot. Um, what I do is I just plop them in there together, a um, little bit of compost, some decent soil, doesn't need to be anything fancy fancy, water it in. Um, They grow all throughout the season. I usually cut back the Jerusalem artichoke once in June, sometimes the second time in July if they're really pushing size because they'll get quite tall in that container. Um, then come fall, I just take the whole container and turn it on its side and dump it out all together. And I'm rooting through there looking for nice-sized tubers because they are very, very tasty. Um, all the good-sized ones come inside. They go into the kitchen with me and go into my belly one way or another. And all the little ones that are, are too small to kind of you know trouble with in the kitchen go right back into that exact same pot with some fresh compost, um, some water. I don't do anything during the winter other than to leave it be and kind of not think about it twice. And I can do it again next year. And I've been doing that with the same same pot and the same plants for going on eight years now.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, Sarah Bailey is in studio with us, a Master Gardener from the Yukon Extension Program. I mentioned community gardens. If people want more information about how to get involved, uh, where would they go?
1: Well, they can certainly contact any of the Master Gardener offices around the state. We have one in each of the Extension offices, as well as one at the Bartlett Arboretum down in Stamford. Locally, they can certainly reach out to me at hartfordmastergardener at gmail.com or they can reach me at eight six o five seven o nine zero one seven.
0: Uh, We've had a listener uh, ask us uh, to mention, and this is something that I used to uh, buy plants from when I lived in Middletown, but the Connecticut River Conservation Districts often uh, hold uh, annual fundraisers, annual plant sales. So that's a good time uh, to not only support uh, this local organization, but to get some of these natives that we've been talking about, Sarah.
1: Absolutely. Most of the conservation districts do run a plant sale in the spring. Uh, We're active with both the Northwest and the North Central Conservation District sales and great plants at good prices.
0: Uh, marty's calling from washington marty we just have a couple of minutes go ahead quickly with your question
2: Uh, i had a question about the wild strawberry as a mulch alternative i spend a lot of energy in the summer pulling it out of a perennial border that has some sedum as a ground cover and i'm wondering what will happen if i just let it go
0: okay marty good question mark do you want to take that one
2: yeah, wild strawberry is one of those plants. If you if you
3: let it go, it'll just take over. Uh, we had it actually planted in combination with a pretty aggressive grass species called uh, purple lovegrass at the garden, uh, and the wild strawberry is just it's a pretty aggressive species. So it eventually took over. So if you were to just allow it to go, uh, it would probably shade out the sedum and and really uh, outcompete the sedum over time.
0: We were talking about container. Uh plants uh, earlier and i wanted to ask about some of the herbs that we that we could be starting even if we don't have a lot of space oh you can
1: start all sorts of different things for containers you can do parsley parsley which is also a great attractive for many of the caterpillars particularly the swallowtail butterfly caterpillars parsley thyme rosemary either the upright rosemary or the prostrate and creeping rosemary Uh, you can do lavender although that's going to take up some space fairly quickly. Um, But almost all of the culinary herbs that we're used to using can can work in containers.
0: And do you have to water those often or not so much? You have to be aware of
1: them. Containers are going to dry out faster than anything else. And if they're in the full sun, they're going to get hotter. So it really depends on the environment around you. You may have to water them daily. In the summertime, midsummer, probably you're going to have to water them daily. But if they're in a cooler location, it may be every day or two.
0: I want to thank Sarah Bailey again, State Coordinator for the Yukon Extension Master Gardener Program based at the Hartford County Extension Center. We'll tweet out some links, and thank you for sharing your information with our listeners, Sarah. My
1: pleasure. I'm always glad to talk
0: about gardening and where spring's going to come. Thank goodness. And also thanks to Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe. They joined us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Uh, they work at New England Wildflower Society in Massachusetts, co-authors of this new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. It's really a lovely book. We thank you so much, Mark, and Dan for joining us today to tell us more about native plants uh, and the benefits uh, to where we live. Thank you so much, Mark and Dan.
2: Sure, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a blast.
0: I'm Lucy Alphatanchil. Where We Live today, produced by Senior Producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Cayon Wolf. And you can learn more about the show at wmpr.org/slash/where-we-live. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.